This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim. Hi, I'm Misa. And we're going to talk about The Parasite by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a novelette, novella, first published in Harper's Weekly in, was it 1884? No, 1894, that's right. Yes, yes. And uh, then in book form in 1895, um, and it got a few publications then, and then uh, not republished until 1970. Um, so it sort of got lost or forgotten, um, but it's subsequently become pretty popular uh, amongst Conan Doyle's non-Sherlock Holmes works. You had read this before, Mr. Jim Moon? Uh, no, I've not. This is one I sort of missed. But uh, Oh, cool. It's one of those, a lot of Doyle's other short stories and other novels that have often been just eclipsed by, by Holmes, sadly. <laughs> yeah, everything's in the shadow of Holmes, really. Um, even the you know the the things that were popular uh, as well the Challenger stories they they just really forgotten in comparison. My side, I'm assuming you hadn't read this. Pre- no, previously. I have not. Yeah. So uh, I I read this maybe last year or the year before or the year before that, and I just thought it was really interesting, but I didn't I didn't really know what to make of it either because it it has a really sort of abrupt ending. Um. And it's a it's a pretty interesting uh, premise, but I didn't I didn't really know what to make of it. But it's been sort of lurking in the back of my mind, like a post hypnotic suggestion <laughs> or something. Um, and I I just kept na- niggling and nagging me, so uh, I thought maybe it's time to exercise it or whatever. <laughs> Um, I hope this doesn't cause you guys to have the same problem I did <laughs> after your first reading. But I've read it like maybe four times now. And uh, I think I have better grasp on what's going on and why. I It's really a simple story, so I'm not sure why it, it does that to me. But um, I think I understand better why. why. What, what did you guys think of it? I found it very, very interesting. Um I can understand your first reaction. I mean, cause I've read it twice um, for this show, and it's kind of because it's sort of it's built as a novel, and the story sort of unfolds like a novel. But the ending is the, a classic kind of short story twist in the tale. Mm-hmm. You know that that last shock, and it kind of it doesn't sort of seem to to fit with the longer form story. And you just go, what, 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 it's over? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, was, I was reading on my Kindle, I had 5% left, and the next page is, before you go, would you like to strike this book? And I'm like, what, what, am I missing some? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, for me, it's kind of, it's a very fascinating um, uh, a snapshot of some of the thinking at the time. Because, um, you know, Conan Doyle was trained as a doctor, and, you know, throughout the, the start of the 18th century, there'd been this long-running um, debate over what was first called uh, animal magnetism, then mm-hmm. mesmerism, then hypnosis. And um, and then, of course, by the, the late uh, 1800s, you know, you've got the rise of the Society for Psychical Research, who have been to, you know, scientifically 
test the powers of mediums and psychics and uh this this is an interesting tipping point of where um uh, there was a point where had things gone differently we might instead of having general anesthetic we might be having hypnotic sleep to deal with minor surgery mm-hmm. but uh, pharmaceuticals won out <laughs> in the long run my mom uh is can't be anesthetized um, because she'll probably die if she is. Um, and so they are, you know, exploring those sorts of things for her whenever she has, uh, um, some, something that might require surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, because she had a really deathly reaction the last time she had surgery. And, uh, it seems to be a real thing, like that people can get, uh, less pain i think my friend did uh dentist under hypnosis yeah had teeth tooth pulled or or filled with hypnosis right um i i i'm not confident enough to use it myself but um i guess if you have no other options then you you best believe that it'll work right you you best believe (laughs) yes I know I obviously have similar reservations, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I mean, I read an interesting book um, you can see on my shelf, fortunately, called the uh, The Power of Dreams by a chap called Brian Inglis, um, and it goes into all kinds of dream stuff, but also does a lot about trans states, and it goes into a lot of the um, the actual, you know, quite actually skeptically and scientific experiments that did with hypnosis, and how they were developing a pain management system in tandem with anesthesia. Um, but you know, the pharma, the pharmacological law won out, and it sort of the research kind of, you know, stopped. And it's interesting. It's in the last few years, it's people have started to go back and hang on, maybe we did miss something because there were sensible scientific men, you know, surgeons using this successfully back in it weren't around the time of this story. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was sidelined, and it's kind of well, maybe we. <laughs> We, we missed a trick here. So it's mm-hmm. interesting. It is actually just now coming back like over a hundred years later and people are looking again going, actually, there is something. This can be useful. So, so, uh, Misa, oh, sorry. You, no. you were going to. Yes. Go for it. Go for it. No, I was just saying that's fascinating that, that people, um, are coming back to it and, and ready to explore the potential. Not that I, believe you you know like that you could kill somebody with it uh-huh. but um but i do think that there's a lot of potential to to help people get inside their own heads and and see where through suggestion where that can help them with help them help themselves yeah what what did you think of the 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 book and and the ending well specific- i i was i listened to it the first time and, mm-hmm. um, and I, and I had to like run into the grocery store and I forgot to push pause on my, um, play player, but mm-hmm. and I, and, and I came back and I, and I was only out for like two minutes and it was done. I was like, what, <laughs> where, where did it go? How did it end like that? So that when I actually read it, I, I had no idea it was coming. And, um, and I, and it was, um, and so then I, so I was reading really closely, trying to figure out, okay, like I was, it, it was like a Sherlock Holmes for me. Like I was looking for the clues. Okay, what's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? And um, it was abrupt, but but immediately I was like, oh, okay, interesting. You know, I, it, it made sense. It was abrupt, but it made sense. 
mm-hmm. based on everything that had come before. I in my I think my third time through or fourth time through it is really hard to remember how many times I've gone through it because I listened to both audiobooks versions on LibriVox and I had read it previously and of course in processing all the different uh, PDFs for it I was reading it there as well but somewhere around the third or fourth time through um, I got an interesting idea about the abrupt ending and I think it's not, it might not actually even be in there, but it's just so interesting. <laughs> so at the end, we find out Miss Penclosa's died at what, three o'clock in the afternoon, right? Um, yeah, sir, she gasped. Miss Penclosa died this afternoon at half past three. Mm-hmm. And that's why he didn't end up, uh, mm-hmm. you know, disfiguring his, his, uh, intended's face mm-hmm. right is I, I i'm pretty sure that's what we're supposed to conclude what he was doing there waiting patiently with a, a bottle of vitriol right yes and we're, we're like whew, saved by the bell you know just uh just a very lucky escape no it was not lucky well for his oh for girlfriend. his girlfriend yeah yeah <laughs> uh, who is it who is it i mean it, it happened because well go ahead well he didn't he didn't scar no yeah yeah, I meant no. the death happened. Uh, right, but uh, the whole thing about this thing is he calls her a parasite, uh, maybe in in the second part, mm-hmm. and that gives us the title. Um, this is also classified as a vampire story sometimes. You know, when they're putting an anthology together, they call it a psychic vampire mm-hmm. story, vampire story. You can sort of see that. But um, uh, I'm, I, I just thought about how the will is always talked about in here in in uh is it possible that she's dead but that was part of her plan and that she has finally fully transferred her consciousness into his body and that she is alive and he's suppressed well that's interesting because that's what she was doing right the whole way through the story is she would take control of him and he would become smaller inside. And uh, whenever she got sick, um, he would uh, regain control. But maybe she, you know, she seemed to have sort of a twinkle evil plan in her eye. And we assume that to be, I think, the, uh, the vitriol. You know, I'm going to get, I, I lost you your job. I almost got you thrown in prison. Now I'm going to destroy your your uh, woman. Um, but maybe the best revenge is, is, you know, I can't possess you uh, uh, romantically. I'll possess you completely. I I don't know if Doyle put that in there or not, but it's just when I read it the third time or fourth time, I was like, wait a second, that is yeah, that abrupt ending uh, could in if. What, what do you think? Is that in there? Or am I just projecting? I, I don't see it myself. I, I I see it as riffing on kind of a, an older sort of story idea. Um, and, that, and that is that this is this is the cost of sorcery. Of the, right. In the end, I mean, every she gets sicker the more she's controlling him and making him do more extreme things. That's right. And... Um, at the moment of revenge, literally, she does. She just actually just burned herself out. 
Right. And it's kind of, you know, it's like the idea, you know, magic always has a, there's always a price to pay. And she, she pays with her own health and life force for, for dominating his. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, Jesse, your idea would have been interesting had the story continued, but he stopped mm-hmm. it. So we don't know what happened. But she, right. I mean, all the way through, she, she, she got, yeah, she got sick when she overdid it. But at one time he said, she, he asked her, where, where do you go? Where do you go? And mm-hmm. she said, I travel. And then he said, well, what happens to your body? I'm, I, I, you know, it goes limpid. But I think the thing about um, Agatha taking half an hour, that half hour is what killed her. Because, right. because yeah, you, if, if I lose, tra- if I, what does she say? If you never let go of your consciousness, absolutely. Otherwise, you can't get back. That's it right. Yes. yes. It was too mm. long. Right. He could, she couldn't hold him that long. So three yeah. thirty, she died, and he didn't kill. Had it had Agatha not had a you know somebody waiting for her, she would have been disfigured. Yeah, and I I, I guess the reason I I was because the ending is so abrupt, and and we have this revelation, and then it's completely cut off. Not like Agatha and I are now fine, right? Um, earlier I noticed earlier, and it's really effective. In this is all done in journal entries, right? So when at one point in the middle of his, you know, description of what he's doing uh, over the day, a sentence ends, right? Just like with has. Yeah, yeah. And then I don't know what happened. (laughs) The next journal entry, right? Um, He was suddenly possessed, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we're, we're given to understand. And because this is cut off in the same sort of way, um, it feels like. Um, it feels like it could be something like that. Yeah, and I think it it is undercooked, and I much prefer the the stray reading in in the support that's actually in the story. The fact that she, when we first meet her, she has a crutch, um, and the fact that she's from uh, is it Trinidad, uh, so, West uh, Indies? Yeah, right? yeah. Um, uh, she's a witch, right? <laughs> she's she's um she's old. She's past forty. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Whereas our hero is, you know, young and vigorous, thirty-four. <laughs> and Agatha's, you know, clearly uh, a young, a young lady. Um, uh, the fact that she's older, the fact that she's got a crutch, um, you know, uh, a cane, right? Essentially, um, that she's ugly. She has an ugly face, and uh, he calls her a hag. Right, and that he is being hag-ridden, which I think is a uh, an interesting term as well, because I I know Heinlein likes to use it a lot, <laughs> but it's not commonly used today. Um, uh, she is a classic uh, witch, but she's using a pseudoscientific power that they're studying at the university he's at. Right, mm-hmm. his, his friend who introduces to him. Uh, to Miss Penclosa is uh, was previously her victim. No, oh no, his. I think he was just interested in her. The victim was that other guy. Right. Okay. Yeah, um, it, was, it was Wilson who uh, introduces Wilson. him. Who uh, at the beginning yes. says he's essentially, in his opinion, thrown his reputation as a scientist away by uh, <laughs> embracing um, this sort of. Area of psychological research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so is Wilson a professor of psychology or uh, alienist, a- alien, 
whatever they called it, alienists. I think, yeah, psychology with this mm. spiritual bent. Yo, hmm. It, uh, so there is a story previous, right, that she's been in, in London. I assume it's, it's, this is set in London, right? I just assumed it was. Um, yeah, it must be set in London. Anyways, he's, she's been in London for a short period of time. She's got her claws into one guy. Yeah. She Tom meets this Sadler. other. Sadler. Right, mm-hmm. Sadler. Uh, and she meets, and yeah, and then that's where the punch-up happens later, right? <laughs> um, when she meets Sadler, she's like, here's, here's the guy I'm going to be a parasite upon. And then she shifts her attention to the skeptic. And uh, I just think it is a, it's a very interesting setup, and it's a really interesting ending, and it's a uh, it's got lots of good events, mostly not shown. Right, the fact that he's breaking into a bank. Yeah, we mm. find that out from the newspaper and from him like cleaning his clothes uh, of the green paint or whatever it is. That's um, it, if you were going to adapt it as a film, uh, you wouldn't do it as journal entries and him, you know, as they do in the illustrations, you know, a bunch of uh, sitting rooms. <laughs> it's all the action takes place um, not on the page. But it's interesting to see what the film, how the films, uh, what they did with it. You said there were two films, right? Yeah, so there's a there was a 1950 TV adaptation which is vaporized, I think. Um, there's a 2015 short film, and there's a 19, I think I want to say, uh, 80s or early 90s, um, uh, low budget feature film. Um, none of them are really available uh, yet. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I think uh, I don't think they will adapt that well because the the one we saw the trailer for was two thumbs down. Yeah, I would say two thumbs down, and also um, it's it's set in the modern day, and I don't think this works as well because one of the things that's going on here is it's it, it's not exactly sexist this story, but uh, the position of women and the position of men is completely bizarre. If you know what I mean? Yes, yes. It's it's also very rooted in kind of the society and thinking of the day. I mean, right. um, I say these were a time where scientists were looking into um, the paranormal and strange powers. But it's also it's interesting. This highlights kind of at the time this was written psychology wasn't actually recognized as a proper science either mm-hmm. uh, that 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 was you know seen as being you know just as bad as mesmerism and animal magnetism and um, a lot of these other kind of strange ideas that were flourishing uh, and being explored around here I mean, quite early on, he says of Wilson, he says, you know, says, you know, I can only go with physiology. That's a proper science. <laughs> I cannot embrace psychology. It is not, you know, it's not the correct discipline. It's not, it's not testable and provable enough. And mm-hmm. yeah, he uh, says, it's, it's, yes, go on. Sorry. I was going to say he he turns he turns every every uh, firefly into a star. That's what he says about Wilson. Like he's just nice. so like. Mm. That's that's a good description. Uh, so uh, the other 
the other thing, this is um, this is early um, Doyle, right? It's not his first anything, uh, but I think it's pretty successful. And um, Mr. Jim Moon, I know you've read um, uh, uh, Mon Passant. Yes, yes. And uh, the Horla, which I, I must say, you know, it's like, I think it's my favorite story from the 19th century. So um, comparing it to this is, you know, it's not always charitable um, because I like the Parasite. I think it's really interesting, but I think the Horla is just amazing. And it's because the Horla is super science fiction, super horror, super fantastic, you know, and this is sort of. Yeah, it's it's light, lighter, sort of mainstream, I would say, fair. Although both are published in mainstream publications. Um, but I think what's interesting about both is they they sort of do the same thing, and they're about the same thing, but they approach it slightly differently. But even the formatting of the stories are uh, very similar. So the parasite starts like this. March 24th. The spring is fairly with us now. Outside my laboratory window, the great chestnut tree is all covered with big glutinous gummy buds, <laughs> some of which have already begun to break into little green shuttlecocks. As you walk down the lanes, you are conscious of the rich, silent forces of nature working all around you. The wet earth smells fruitful and luscious. Green shoots are peeping out everywhere. The twigs are stiff with their sap, and the moist, heavy English air is laden with faintly resinous perfume. Buds in the hedges, lamps beneath them, everywhere the work of reproduction going forward. That's That so, sounds like a bit florid. Yeah, I forgot how florid it started. But um, I love that last line of the first paragraph. Everywhere the work of reproduction going forward. Uh, everywhere except for Miss Penclose's uh, life, right? She's an old woman in that she's almost past reproduction uh, age. Um, she uh, is ugly, having trouble getting a man, right? Um, he is about to get married. This is this is very sex, 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 sex at the beginning. Uh, if Eric Rabkin were here, he'd be <laughs> much better job of pointing out, you know, the stiff. Stiff with sap, <laughs> all that sort of thing. Um, but for me, that intro is much more interesting when co you compare it to the intro to the Horla, which starts not May March 24th, but May 8th. What a lovely day. I've spent all the morning lying on the grass in front of my house under the enormous plantain tree, which covers and shades and shelters the whole of it. I like this part of the country. I am fond of living here because I am attached to it by deep roots, the profound and delicate roots which attach a man to the soil on which his ancestors were born and died, to their traditions, their usages, their food, their local expressions, the peculiar language of the peasants, the smell of the soil, the hamlets, and the atmosphere itself. I love the house in which I grew up. From my windows I can see the Seine, which flows by the side of my garden, on the other side of the road, almost through my grounds, the great and wide Seine, which goes to Rouen and Havre, and which is covered with boats passing to and fro. And then he describes more of the landscape, right? And that's where both of the stories begin. They begin in the spring, 
right? One in May, Mar May 8th, the other March 24th, and then continue as journal entries. Um, the Horla is mostly not about, uh, about what this story is about. It's not about hypnosis, but there is a really striking hypnosis scene in the Horla, which I'm going to read for you. And I think it's just really interesting because it made me, in thinking about what's going on in the parasite, it, it's like if Conan Doyle hadn't read uh, the Horla, which is entirely possible that he hadn't, it, it's only if uh, Horla is 1884, 1880, something, mm. 1886, something like that. Um, it's possible it was not translated into English yet, and maybe Conan Doyle read it in French or read an early thing, but it's just so interesting. So I'm going to read the diary entry for July 16th. Uh, from the Horla. I saw some interesting things. Yes, oh, so I saw some things yesterday which troubled me very much. I was dining at my cousin's, Madame Sabel, whose husband is Colonel of the 76th Chauzure at Limoges. Uh, there were two young women there, one of whom had married a medical man, Dr. Parent, who de devotes himself greatly to nervous diseases and to the extraordinary manifestations which now. Uh, just now, experiments in hypnotism and suggestion are producing. He related to us at some length the enormous results obtained by English scientists and doctors of the medical school at Nancy, and the facts which adduced appeared to me so strange that I declared that I was altogether incredulous. Here's another skeptic, right? Uh, we are, he declared, on the point of discovering one of the most important secrets of nature. I mean to say, one of the most important secrets of the earth for assuredly there are some up in the stars yonder or over uh, of a different kind of importance ever since man has thought since he has been able to express or write down his thoughts he has felt himself close to a mystery which is impenetrable to his coarse and imperfect sen senses and he endeavors to supplement the feeble penetration of his organs by the efforts of his intellect so this that's uh, our main character in uh, The Parasite is a medical doctor or medical uh, physiologist, right, uh, professor, versus the psychologist. Um, as long as the intellect remained in the elementary stage, this intercourse with invisible spirits assumed forms which were commonplace, though terrifying. Thence sprang the popular belief in the supernatural, the legends of wandering spirits, of fairies, gnomes, or ghosts. I might even say the conception of God, for our ideas of the workman creator, uh, capitalized on W and C, from whatever religion they may have come down to us, are certainly the most mediocre, the stupidest, and the most unacceptable inventions that ever sprang from the frightened brain of any human creature. Nothing is truer than what Voltaire says, if God made man in his own image, man has certainly paid him back again. But for the more than a century, men have seemed to had a presentiment of something new. Mesmer and some of the others have put us on an unexpected track, and within the last two or three years especially, we have arrived at the results really surprising. My cousin, who is very incredulous, smiled, and Dr. Parent said to her, Would you like me to try to send you to sleep, madame? Yes, certainly. She sat down in an easy chair, and be he began to look at her fixedly, as if to fascinate her. Ah. Uh, I love the word fascinate because it, it means 
oh, I'm so interested, but also means to fix, mm -hmm. like to attach, right? I suddenly felt myself somewhat discomposed. My heart beat rapidly, and I had a choking feeling in my throat. I saw that Madame Sabelle's eyes were growing heavy. Her mouth twitched, her bosom heaved, and at the end of ten minutes, she was asleep. Go behind her, the doctor said to me, so I took a seat behind her. He put a visiting card into her hands and said to her, uh, so a visiting card is like a, it's like a business card, right? Yep. yep. Um, it's a white piece of paper with somebody's name on it. Um, and said to her, this is a looking glass. What do you see in it? She replied, I see my cousin. What is he doing? He is twisting his mustache. And now he is taking a photograph out of his pocket. Whose photograph is it? His own. That was true, for the photograph had been given me that same evening at, at the hotel. Who gave him this photograph? <laughs> doesn't say. What is his attitude in, the, his, in this portrait? He is standing up with his hat in his hand. She saw these things in that card, in that piece of white pasteboard, as if she had seen them through them in a looking glass. The young women were frightened and exclaimed, That is quite enough, quite enough. Um, and then there's a post-hypnotic suggestion here. Uh, but the doctor said to her authoritatively, you will get up at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Then you will go and call on your cousin at his hotel and ask him to lend you 5,000 francs, which your husband asks of you, and, while, and which he will ask for when he sets out on his coming journey. Then he woke her up on returning to my... So the next thing that happens... Um, is she comes the next day and acts on that in the same way um, that the engagement um, where Agatha comes and says, oh, I'm breaking off our engagement, right? It, it's exactly parallel in that she doesn't have any memory of it, just as later on our hero doesn't. I, I thought that was in incredibly striking. That the, it, It's the same sort of scene, isn't it? That's crazy. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Especially when you have the very similar openings. It is kind of, mm -hmm. there's a lot of shared DNA. And it's kind of, there is. Too uh, much yeah. to be a coincidence almost. Um, although, yeah. although Conan Doyle does take a very different tack to he the Hawler. But there is, I think, another thing the stories have in common. I think you get about halfway through them and you, you begin to wonder, is this really happening or is it a delusion? Mm -hmm. And that's a question that's raised in both right. uh, and resolved in, in different ways. I mean, the whole is certainly, I think, um, it goes more into the, so the spiritual and the psychological and certainly in the emotional, because um, whereas the parasite has a bit more, I don't know what you call it, kind of more of a, a spirit of adventure mm -hmm. <laughs> or, a, or, a mis or like a conventional crime mystery sort of to it. You know, um, you know, our protagonist in the hall, he's, he's a professor, but he's very much kind of a two-fisted man of action and the hero. Whereas <laughs> our, narrator, our unnamed narrator in the hall is tortured and, you know, he's quest questioning everything in his own sanity and um, he's very much, you know, <laughs> tormented and tortured by what goes, what happens to him. Uh, the Parasite ends on... Uh, the last journal entry is May 5th, and the first journal entry on the Horla is May 8th. 
<laughs> just enough time to get from uh, from London to uh, Normandy. <laughs> 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 um, so <laughs> the, the the timing it's 1887 for usually the uh, translations of the Horla but um, I, I just I think it's it's entirely possible that they're written completely in isolation I don't think Conan Doyle even necessarily had to have read it it's just because you you can imagine both of these guys going to such see such you know demonstrations and then walking out of there saying this is a story. Well, I say it was it was a huge you know issue of the age and you know mm-hmm. debated by you know uh, the culture at the time quite widely and you know it was something it wasn't a flash in the pan it was um, it was something that you know lasted right throughout the 19th century into the earlier 20th. Um, I mean, I sort of just doing some reading up, uh, rereading up on the sort of the history of mesmerism and uh, hypnotism, and kind of you know the year before in France, you have a very high-profile trial where a woman claimed she was hypnotised into committing a crime, mm-hmm. and there'd been other cases beforehand, and this was something that was hugely debated of whether a mesmerist or a magnetist or a you know a hypnotist had had the power to make somebody do something essentially immoral and against their will. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 you know, so it was kind of, I can really imagine kind of, you know, both uh, Maupassant and uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle both having very much an interest in these fields for their own individual reasons, um, being, a, you know, reading up on these cases and these debates and it just going, now that's a great idea for a story, this psychic mm-hmm. obsession of possession. Um, yeah. it, it, especially post-hypnotic suggestion, that the, the fact that both stories have that this is regular hypnosis, where you know you use it for sedation, or you, you uh, I don't know if there is such a thing as regular hypnosis, but typical normal. Uh, when you talk about, uh, it's like you are going. So if you just do a search on Google and say hypnosis, right? Usually, what comes up is like lose weight or <laughs> stop smoking right um i i believe this study show that neither of those work right uh as a general rule and that's why it's not commonly applied but also um the way you talk about people who are um able to be hypnotized is often it's uh, susceptibility that's the negative version uh, and I think that's how it's used in uh, the parasite. Um, and ability, right? Hypnotic ability is not the ability to hypnotize someone, but your ability to be hypnotized. Yes, yes. And what's funny about that is you'd think, well, that's a good thing or it's a bad thing, right? Which is it? Um, well, if you're if you're like our hero on this story, it's probably a bad thing because he's almost uh, thrown in jail for a couple of crimes, right? Uh, he lost his job because this lady's able to hypnotize him. On the other hand, um, it would be nice to be able to get surgery without having to suffer the dangers of uh, anest- uh, regular anesthetic. Um, so when I was a kid and I was looking up, you know, trying to figure out what the hell hypnosis was and whether it was bullshit or not, um, I, I pretty much concluded uh, based on a bunch of you know, research over the years, 
that I really understand what hypnosis is. And then in reading this story, uh, I sort of had another little revelation, which I think is very interesting, that the best way to understand maybe what hypnosis is, is reading a really good story <laughs> and buying it. As you're reading it, you say, you don't say, this is preposterous. No such doctor existed. <laughs> um, this is preposterous. I can find no evidence that there was a bank robbery of this kind in that year. Right? Um, it's kind of uh, what we call the willing suspension of disbelief, right? Is that sort of old line about how you go into the play in the theater and you see the actors mm. on the stage and um, instead of saying what what is that man talking about there's been no murder right that's just a prop that knife's not even sharp right we would say dude you don't get it that's not what we're doing here we're appreciating the story we're buying into it on purpose and that is really close i think to what at least one interpret one interpretation of what hypnosis is or is caused by um, and I think that this is a powerful one because it got me thinking about that word will, which is used many times in this story. And there's one kind of will that is so powerful that um, not just you and I are forced to submit to it, but even the state is forced to submit to it. And that is the last will and testament. After you're mm. dead... You've got a piece of paper that is, you know, documented properly that is enforceable by bailiffs and sheriffs and the police, right? <laughs> if you just ignore that piece of paper and say, no, no, this is not real. This person's will does not live beyond their grave. It's just a piece of paper with some ink on it. Uh, you're in trouble because that will is somebody's enforcement and continues as long as it's, you know, signed properly and witnessed and all that stuff. Um, and we accept it and think it's valuable usually, right? We care what someone's will is after their death. And that's weird that we do, considering there's nobody alive to, uh, you know, actually care. It, it's it's kind of like saying... Um, I think that even though I don't think I have hypno hypnotic ability, as in I don't think I'm susceptible to hypnosis, maybe under the right circumstances, if I was shown it correctly, I would. Just like um, people who maybe witness the fact that uh, the actors uh, in professional wrestling are not actually um, <laughs> suffering injuries concomitant with the injuries they're delivering um, can still like professional like and appreciate and participate in the drama of professional wrestling without it actually being quote unquote a real thing right just like the a piece of paper the will saying this is what will be happening after I die is a real thing and I think that's got something to do with the promises that we make to each other as human beings. You know, like Yeah, you might be right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the idea that say like um the act of reading 
as an act of self-hypnosis, I think, uh, and even more on the nose and closer to what this story is about, is <laughs> the fact mm-hmm. that if you really enjoy a book and it's by a, a skillful enough author, you will not just have a memory of those words telling you the story. You'll actually have voices mm-hmm. and images in your head like you'd seen a movie of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? With a, it doesn't happen with every author. Not author is has the skill to you know take you away or you, you're not into that particular story enough. But certainly, you know, I think we all have that the kind of that weird thing of, you know, you've actually seen the book play out in your mind when you just actually just read, you know, characters on a page. And that's kind of, that is a sort of, it is a related thing, I think, definitely. It's, you know, reading mm-hmm. and being engrossed like that is a self-hypnosis, I think, to a, in a very mild way. Yeah. Um, and I understand from, I mean, there's various, you can read all kinds of contrary things on it because it's still kind of under-researched, but... I know the kind of it has been said kind of people who have an imagination are better hypnotic subjects mm-hmm. whereas um uh, people who are, are very literal are very and very logical are harder to to hypnotize you need to have that um imagination and and I would you know point out that doesn't necessarily go to be like gullible or credulous but it's just <laughs> having that kind of the kind of mind that can picture and formulate and visualize things rather than uh, someone who's a bit more kind of word or number orientated, mm-hmm. which is interesting. There's, um, there's uh, also the question of the, the hypnotizer, right? The person who's doing it rather than just the... So it seems to be that not all hypnotists have the same ability to hypnotize people. Um, and I always come back to this line they said about um, about Steve Jobs, and I found that it was true. You know, there are people who uh, exist. I've met them. My mom's one of them. Um, they have this thing, the reality distortion field, right? Around them, they say this is w- the way things can uh, get done, and people are skeptical, right? But they have the ability to convince you mm-hmm. um, that it is real and it is possible. And um, you can buy into their vision such that um, it's like a post-hypnotic suggestion um, in the way that a great uh, book can you know, become a part of you. Um, you can act on it as if it, it was a part of you, even though those words were not yours they were the authors um uh what they said you know what they said about hitler right in his speeches um is that he hypnotized the audience right yeah now not everybody who goes to a hitler rally <laughs> is um is uh likely you know they're not all forced to be there so a lot of them are buying into it uh prior but the fact that it, he is a powerful speaker probably has something to do with it. Well, and oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Well, I just I I think you know it's the susceptibility. Um, people are willing to set aside um, the. So if we're talking modern politics, right? Uh, Donald Trump's not a great speaker, um, but he seems to have hypnotic ability. <laughs> um, but I like, would that's say that's a crowd mentality, though. Yeah, I think that that's right. But 
uh, I would never be a person in that crowd. You know, I, I sort of am self-excluded. I never go to, you know, political speech, speech. If I, I don't, I feel uncomfortable in crowds uh, because they do, you know, that mob mentality does not fit my, my personality at all. It's sort of antith- antithetical. I have same things with work training talks I've attended over the, <laughs> over the years. <laughs> you get some company head honcho coming down. One actually, when I walked in a call center and saying, you're part of an international team and blah, blah, blah. And saying this company vision is kind of, right. there's me and lots of other kind of, you know, semi, you know, people employed, you know, scraping a few hours with this company because they won't employ anyone full time or right. minimum wage, half of them are housewives. They're all just sort of like looking and looking at him going, what planet is he from? <laughs> I'm just here to pay the bills. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. well, um, I don't think of myself as somebody who could be easily hypnotized because for one thing, I have, I have this thing where I don't see anything in my mind's eye. Like it's a, it's a condition that I found out about on another podcast. After all my life, I found out that all the rest of you actually do see things and I don't, like I've just got black, black in my head. But, um, so I don't think I could be easily hypnotized. But I once had a friend, and he was very—he was a deep meditator, and and he was extremely like if like Arthur Conan Doyle type person, like into <laughs> spirituality and and like lots of different things. And and one day, um, I was just standing there in chapters, and all of a sudden, I had this image of this guy. And he, he was like, and as I said, I don't see anything. I never see anything. But I had this image of him standing there in front of me and he started talking to me and, and like, and then all of a sudden it was gone. And then later that night he phoned me and he said, did you, did you get, did you, did you see me? Oh my God. Wow. That actually happened. Wow. I was awake. Like I'm not like that. Happened. He projected himself into your, yeah. into your mind. Yeah. Which is mm. crazy, but it is crazy. It did happen. So, like, what, what you went when you were talking about your mother? I, that, I didn't. I didn't even think about it when I read this story. It didn't mm. even come back to me until you just started talking about uh, your mom there. Yeah, she doesn't actually like get in my like. You know, I'm driving down the road and there suddenly she's out. out the no, but but like the I, idea of it. Yeah, but the idea of um, uh, convincing you know, convincing someone to adopt a vision. I mean that that is. That's kind of what religion is too, right? Is there's this book, and there's this uh, guy who says this book is amazing. You're gonna love it, right? Let me tell you about some of the things that right, going on in the book. And then you, uh, you, oh, I think a lot of people they don't even need to read the book. They just want to hear about the stories that are going on in it, and they just buy into it and say, "This, yeah, that's uh, I'm adopting this," right? So that is, it's not that. Most people are not L. Ron Hubbard. They go out and make their own. They just sort of say, you know, I love the Lord of the Rings. It's the greatest book ever. <laughs> and they sort of take on, you know, the role of, uh, I don't know, Frodo or Sam Gamgee or something. And uh, try and adopt that as, uh, adopt the will that is in there as being a part of themselves. And if you read a lot of books, I mean, that's what you're doing, right? When you read a book and you enjoy it, uh, at least if it's the right kind of enjoyment, <laughs> you take it in and it becomes a part of you. And uh, I'm sure that it's the case that uh, one of the things that happens in this story and also in the Horla, 
um, is the confabulation. Where remember when um, in the story the uh, the girl the the fiance he says to her, um, "What did you do this morning?" And she says, uh, "I was just reading this book, and uh, then I, uh, I fell asleep." And, he's, and he says, "But you say you had a dream." Uh, um, and she says, "Yeah, yeah, I had a dream. You were in it. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what it was about." And he says, "Well, if you haven't gone out, then why are your boots dirty, right?" And she says, "Oh, my boots are dirty. Why are you questioning that?" And he says, uh, "If your boots are dirty, don't you think?" And she says, "No, my maid must not have cleaned them." Mm-hmm. Right, that's confabulation. That also happens in uh, the Horla when uh, the post-hypnotic suggestion works, and the cousin says, um, "I wouldn't. Uh, I didn't ask you for five thousand francs." Right? She makes up a story that explains her behavior. When I read something a long time ago, I may have incorporated that into a memory, or made it a memory, so that it actually happened to me. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. um, that an event in a book that I read is now a part of my history, and I'm not—I know that this happens, um, but I—I I don't think it happens too frequently. But I also don't know how often it happens, which means um, it is kind of like someone else's will taking over, and it makes you think about what a will is. Um, but the the those stage shows where people go up on stage and you know start clucking like chickens or barking like dogs um there's something going on there and it's not just um uh you know those people aren't necessarily plants in the audience right oh uh, not at all i mean i i saw i've seen a few of these uh hypnosis stage shows over the years and what you'll notice in the good ones is they actually start with a large group of people Mm-hmm. And he weeds out to a small number the the people who are most success you know are going to be most susceptible, mm-hmm. and and will get the best results. And I, mean, I saw a, a guy in Vegas, and he started about twenty volunteers and got it down to about six. Um, you know, he just took it, when he was too, he did it was interesting because he did I can't remember his name but he did a show he was explaining the hypnotic method as he went along, mm-hmm. uh, which is quite interesting. But um. I mean, he did something that goes back to the oldest, the old days of mesmerism, of when he had it. He said to the to the ladies, he had it. He said, you know, uh, when I take hold of your hand, you'll have an orgasm. <laughs> and uh, I don't think they were faking. One girl wouldn't let go of his hand. Seriously, <laughs> 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 he was getting quite nervous. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was it was unbelievable, you know. But it's, it's I know a lot of people take a very skeptical. Like, old people just you know go along with it and act up, but. Um, it, it's quite it's quite bizarre when you, when you actually see it a good hypnotist at work. You actually there is something going on here, and it is really is. really odd um, yeah. that this this is possible. It, it's fascinating because it it's like thinning the line between you um where where my brain it the, the, it makes it makes our thoughts more permeable, like our, mm-hmm. the thoughts that as they cross each other, and I think that. If the Horla and and Sir, and this story are like if if Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had not read the Horla, I think he would be absolutely delighted that his story parallels that one so much because because mm-hmm. it's actually like a, um almost like a verification of his story, you know, like okay, we we just dipped into this same pond here 
and mm-hmm. and and pulled out the same thing, which you know adds to the because this is what he believed. Mm-hmm. There's something there's something really deep there, and it it it's tapped into into the story. One of the things that uh, comes, I think, I don't think it was in the links you sent, Mister Jim Moon, but I think it was um, in just my reading about uh, maybe on the Wikipedia entry. Uh, rereading about uh, hypnosis is there's maybe it was in the thing you sent Mr. Jimin um, it was about uh, the two theories of uh, what what hypnosis is one of them is sort of this um, sort of the sense that we're participants um, like actors acting well on a stage right we imagine ourselves in the circumstances we're uh, actively involved with the hyp- hypnos- hypnotizer. And the other theory is that it's there's this thing, the trance, right, that we go into and that it is sort of a physiological rather than a um, purely psychological thing. And mm. then attached to these is the uh, in those cases uh, where, you know, people are claiming to be under hypnosis during uh, criminal behavior um, is the idea that, uh, well, that's a uh, fine defense, except you're still you're still the one who did it. Right. Um, so in I think one of the claims and this is sort of the one that's been promulgated is that uh, you can't do anything against your moral nature. Uh, that you've been hypnotized to do. So in the case of uh, the Horla, where she comes and asks for 5,000 francs, um, there's nothing really immoral going on there, right? But in the case of uh, the parasite, in him going to rob the bank, we should think that he's doing something immoral. The fact that he's going to uh, splash vitriol on his uh, intended's face is uh, immoral, right? So if I convince you to join uh, the Symbionese <laughs> Liberation Front and go rob a bank with me, um, you could say, I was under hypnosis, right? But um, if the theory is that you're a willing participant, um, then, and that's the one that's sort of promulgated still today, then you wanted to do that, right? So, um, you know, there's the case of Patty Hearst. You guys know about her? Yes. her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she ends up joining her kidnappers and what they call it, Stockholm Syndrome, right? Mm. Where you sympathize with your captors um, and be, adopt their will as yours. Um, I think that that's real. That I think that she absolutely... Uh, if you want to call it a, Stock- a Stockholm syndrome, I don't think she was faking in order to, you know, some plan. I think she really adopted their views. Not that I, you know, know her personally or anything like that, but the fact that they gave her a gun and she's actively participating in the bank robberies is um, not evidence that she was being, you know, doing something against her will. It's evidence to the contrary, I would say. And how does that happen? Isn't she doing something that's immoral? Well, so I, 
I don't I don't know where that it all falls in, but notice when they do it on stage, you know, make you bark like a dog or uh, uh, have uh, an orgasm on stage. Um, that widowing process needs to happen, right? Where the stage mentalist takes those persons from the volunteers and sets aside those who are unwilling to sort of do it in public, right? Mm-hmm. They have to do that. Otherwise, it doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Cause definitely. I, I, don't think, I don't think if you said, Jesse, uh, we're going to hypnotize you and I'm going to hold your hand and you're going to have an orgasm, <laughs> I think I'd say, mm, I'm not going to participate. <laughs> it seems a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> but if your whole life is about, you know, oh, that's going to be exciting, won't that be an exciting thing? And, and then later when the, hypnot- uh, the hypnotist, the mentalist says, uh, and you will not remember... Uh, what you had happened to you, you'll think it was a, uh, I asked you to um, hold a glass of water. And in fact, uh, that is not what you will have have done, but that's what you will think will have happened. And then everybody afterwards says to you, oh my God, I can't believe what you did. Look at this video I took of you, right? And I said, what? That? Oh no. They seem to um, genuinely at least claim some of them, to have no memory of it. I don't know how that works, but that's what this story does, right? Mm-hmm. Well, from what, from my reading of it, it's kind of, I think kind of the common claim that, oh, you, you can't be hypnotized to do anything against your will, or you consider it immoral, is, is partly um, people engaging in hypnotism going, it's all right, it's fine. <laughs> We're not yeah. evil. We're not evil mind control wizards. It's all <laughs> right. It's all right. Um, but it, you know, it does seem, from my reading, is you know what a good hypnotist will do. He'll create a situation through suggestion in the mind of the the person in a trance that for whatever they want them to do, it's all right. I mean, um, and that is a it's a recognized psychological factor. People's behavior changes if they think they have permission. This is why a lot of our great performers, our comedians, our actors, our our rock stars, they're not in their daily life extroverted. They tend to be introverted, but you put them on a stage in front of a crowd, they mentally get a ticket that gives them permission to be extroverted. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's, there's a whole, like, lots of interesting psychological studies about kind of if you change the circumstances a person perceives themselves to be in, that they're their morality becomes fluid. They think they have permission or they can do this or the other. I mean, in more wider things, it's kind of, you know, it's recognized that if you're in a place with no litter, people are more reticent about dropping litter. Mm-hmm. And if, if you allow one old building to get one broken window, right. all the rest will be smashed within a, in a couple of days because mm-hmm. people take that as a permission. And um, one of the links I sent you was about, it was just a, two years ago. A shopkeeper was placed into a trance by a hypnotist and robbed. Uh, and, right. you know, it's absolutely fascinating because obviously a shopkeeper isn't going to just go, yep, yeah, have the money out of my pockets, empty my till. But this guy came in and seemed to very quickly put this guy into a trance, tapped him on the shoulder, and this guy just let him rob him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With, you know, <laughs> um, and re- reading the commentary on it when they talked to, you know, experts in hypnosis they said well he must have been got out earlier to have an instant trigger 
implanted to put him under like that. Mm. And, they, and they said a very interesting remark, kind of, you know, they can't, a good hypnotist can change those boundaries to fool your own morality. Um, and it's kind of, it's not a case that hypnotists have magical powers, but it is a skill you learn. But some people can be very, very good at it. The same way as some people can learn the piano and be a virtuoso, whereas people like me are going to struggle to get past chopsticks. <laughs> no matter how hard I practice, you know. Um, <laughs> it's, you know some people, you know, uh, I think what is uh, Stephen King said, you know, talent is like a, a, a knife. It's a blunt knife you're given, and but no one gets a sharp one. Although some people get god awfully huge ones. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right. Uh, we uh, we briefly mentioned before the podcast began uh, the Manchurian Candidate, and I yes. thought that mm. was an interesting. <laughs> so there's that Jason Bourne movie just came out, right? That that whole series is sort of. Uh, in the same vein, right? The, he's their version of a Manchurian candidate. Um, the, the there's a one of the Call of Duty games, I think it is, maybe bl- one of the Black Ops, maybe all of the Black Ops. Um, th- they have this premise that you're you are a uh, a person who has been programmed, right? That's and that's what post hypnotic suggestion is, right? Mm. Is it's programming, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's been programmed to do action. So in the Manchurian Candidate, we've got a character who is programmed to, um, you know, work as an operative for the for the enemy, uh, running for president. Wow, right? Uh, it, it, wouldn't this be great? And uh, I think a lot of money has been spent by the CIA in trying to get this stuff happening. <laughs> um, I don't think. Uh, what um mr jim yeah you've read i haven't seen that movie but mr jimun did you you know about mk ultra and all that oh stuff? yes yes i've so, heard a little bit about it but i don't know i mean what, what, what's that is that connected well it is i mean you know they're kind of you know they were using psychoactive substances and they were very much exploring the possibilities of kind of one was this you know could you put someone in a state where they just give up all their secrets quite willingly Mm-hmm. Uh, and secondly, you know, the, the more sinister, you know, how far can you, you know, use these subjects to program somebody to, to go out and, you know, do your will and, you know, at least we create the ultimate sleeper agent because mm-hmm. if they don't even know they're an agent, that, that's perfect. That's right. really deep cover, <laughs> you know. <laughs> they can't give themselves away because they don't know what they are. They don't What's even that? know they're doing the espionage for you or whatever, you know, <laughs> nefarious things, you know, they want to carry out. Uh, who, who is the JFK assassinator? I can't remember his name. Lee Harvey Oswald. Right, Lee mm-hmm. Harvey Oswald. Um, we don't know. Uh, <laughs> he he got shot shortly after. Um, he did. I, I I haven't looked in closely enough. I don't really care that much. It's American, so I, I'm not obsessed with it like... You know, a lot of Americans are, and I, I normally I would be, but it's just, I think there's just too much to read. <laughs> In any case, um, I think at least some of the conspiracy theories about what's going on there is that he is, when he says, I'm a patsy, um, that's him after the post-hypnotic suggestion, realizing, you know, as our character uh, in this story is, you know, what's that green stuff on my clothes why is my uh, screwdriver all covered with green paint oh my god right 
he's if if uh, the police were to walk in right after he splashed his girlfriend with with vitriol, right? Um, no, his uh, fiance with vitriol on her face. Um, we would say, you know, that's bullshit. Your story is, you know, you're angry at her for uh, breaking off the engagement. <laughs> <laughs> Even though that that went away, the story all leads back to him being like, why is he attacking Miss Penclosa, right? Why is he robbing the bank? Well, he just lost his job as a professor mm. because he was incompetent, right? So all of that, uh, you can see why is such a powerful. Um, I mean, if the if the CIA uh, guys are looking for funding. Uh, reading this story makes you say, wow, if we could do that, you know, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I've, uh... I mean, it's interesting. It's not, bunk. Uh, it's not completely bunk. There's something to it. So, but that also seems, I mean, might be that it's all, you know, w- very well understood. Just it's not public knowledge, but I think there's also problems with it in, in another way. I'm not sure. Sorry. Continue. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's interesting. It's kind of something like 30 years later, Lovecraft writes a story on similar lines, a thing on the doorstep right, right. about mental possession. Um, yeah. But that's kind of, that's a very different kettle of fish because that was written at a different time by which, um, you know, hypnotism for better or worse was completely placed in the realms of bunk and had been ignored. And there wasn't this huge social dialogue going on about it in the society of the time. And so, you know, Lovecraft, you know, it's a part of his vehicle of his, his own personal mythology he was making because he felt conventional mythologies were, were played out. Um, but certainly, I mean, I, I think kind of there is kind of a little subgenre uh, of tales about evil mesmerists, the Svengali. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's more than a few others about people who fall foul of you know, various strange, often <laughs> regrettably uh, foreign mystics, which is mm-hmm. possibly yeah. possibly why this story is kind of only recently resurfaced that maybe people put actions. There's a little racial element that, that you know. Maybe. Well, she's I think she's supposed to be white, isn't she? She's she's from the West Indies, but I don't think she's because uh, I can't remember her description, but I, I think her eye is gray. Her eyes are gray, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and her hair is chestnut, or maybe that's a girlfriend, uh, the fiancé. I can't remember. But she she didn't strike me as being particularly, uh, you know, uh, of voodoo descent <laughs> sort of thing. No, in um, the picture from the magazine, she's very not voodoo. Yeah, she's not. She, she's not. I mean, the fact that she comes from this strange land where that sort of thing... I think is is perfectly legitimate, and that happens in the Horla too, right? The the being that comes to take over his will, uh, if that's what's going on, um, is uh, from Brazil. Yes, that's right. Yes. So uh, I, I think you know you just have to have a foreign element. <laughs> Otherwise, why is it happening in London, right? Mm. Right. It's if everybody knows about it. But uh, yeah, I've forgotten about the thing on the doorstep. Um, that is uh that actually has the ending that I was anticipating here, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> There's your post hypnotic. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I incorporated the idea into this story even though it's not actually there. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> 
This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.